When I look in the mirror, I don't see wrinkles. When I look in the mirror, I see hair on my head, not my shoulder. Hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bowl, the fountain of truth. The fountain of truth about what? Well, the fountain of truth about aging. Now, here is something that we don't want to face, but it is inevitable. When I was 63, that's 10 years ago, I had my checkup and the doctor said, you're fine. And I said, pretty good, right? And he said, well, yeah, right now, but something's going to happen. <laughs> that's a true story. So yeah, he's right. Something's going to happen. And at one point, you are going to be going to a physician and you're going to feel disempowered. And you're going to look at that physician as your God. You're going to want that person, male or female, to be invulnerable, but they're not. And today we have Dr. Sonny Smith, founder of Empowering Women Physicians Coaching uh, and clinical professor of family medicine and public health for the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, to talk to us as consumers about the truth that doctors really are human beings too. And during COVID, they didn't fare all that well. I'll give you one statistic before we say hello to Dr. Smith. The Physicians Foundation 2020 Survey of American Physicians, they wanted to look at the impact of COVID-19 on physician well-being, and they found that nearly one in four physicians, 22%, know another doctor who actually committed suicide. And the majority, 58%, said that they were personally burned out. You don't want to hear that about your physician, and maybe that's why Physicians are under more pressure than most people because they have to be perfect. It's Dr. Smith who's going to help us unpack all of that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Thank you for bringing me here and for bringing attention to this really important issue because you're, the way you said it was just so perfect that doctors are human too. We really are, right? It seems so simple, of course. Like if I ask my small child, he's like, of course we're human, mommy. Everyone's human. But there becomes this expectation that we can be superhuman. And, you know, at times we rise up and do things that seem that way. But underneath it all, we really are human too. So one of the things that we really don't want to hear, and this is probably the essence of it, is that there's something, uh, an issue with our doctors. We don't want them to be sick. We don't want them to have diabetes. We don't want them to be overweight. We don't want them to smoke. Uh, and we certainly don't want them to be stressed because we mm-hmm. are, because we are when we see it. We should be the ones who are stressed. So let's talk first about empowering women's physicians coaching. Tell us what it is and why you founded that. That is a good question as well. So I was an academic family physician uh, running a free clinic and advising medical students, spending my whole career advising the students and telling them it's going to be okay and helping to make sure that we make a lot of very well-rounded new doctors, right? You take a human off of the street and within four years they become an MD, then they go to their residency and then they become an attending. And so I had spent my whole career doing that on myself and my friends and my colleagues were working very, very hard. We're always working very hard. This is even before COVID-19. Um, and I found there's just a lot of distress, right? We can't be immersed in this world without very quickly 
learning that we take people who are full of compassion, full of the desire to help, who are driven to heal, driven with love, who really want to care for people. And then we put them in a system that unfortunately kind of beats that out of them in terms of we make people stay up all night long, we make them study amounts of material that can't possibly be learned. And then when you go to residency, you know, within months, 20% of people feel suicidal because it, the, the challenges are so um, significant. And it's, it's funny that people can't really even imagine that our culture in medicine is one where you can't sleep, you can't drink, you can't pee, you can't eat, you're just expected to keep going and going and going. And so my own story is like when I was an intern, um, I had a whole bunch of neurologic side effects um, myself when I wasn't able to sleep and we had to do 36 hour shifts at that time. They put in some work hour restrictions, but they're still, it's very common to work 24 hours or more. And so I was in, I was young and healthy and had a seizure and then I, had a prolonged seizure, status epilepticus, and then I was comatose for an entire week. A young, healthy woman with no prior medical history who not only develops mental health, you know, distress because it's working so hard and no way out, but then also keeps going, keeps going, keeps going to the point where I actually seized and couldn't function, had to be intubated, was on a breathing tube. So with that as my own background, I got better. You know, I, I had a little bit of an anoxic brain injury and and then returned to work. They didn't know if I'd be able to continue to be a physician at all, ever. Um, and I, as you mentioned in the introduction, have gone on to be a clinical professor at a university, at a lead medical school. I'm an awarded professor for humanism and excellence in teaching. But then what I saw is the cycle was repeating itself with my students, with our residents, with yeah. our faculty, with my colleagues. And it's like, how long are we going to allow this to go on? And how many more people are we going to bring in who are healthy and loving and wonderful off the streets to throw them to the wolves, yeah. right? We have to change this because you mentioned we expect our doctors not to um, be sick or stressed or take leave or any of these things. And the truth is, you know, like a woman is going to have to have a baby, right? Like most yes. of us are, we are going to need a leave. We're going to need at least a few months. We're going to have parents who get sick. We're going to get in car crashes ourselves. We're going to, right, we are human. All the things that come up for human beings. So we need a system that allows for that to happen so that we can continue to be there for others who need us. We have to care for ourselves first such that we may care for others because if we don't, there's just the career sustainability, particularly for young women faculty and physicians, we end up leaving the profession. And after all the hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own, plus the government, plus the investment of, you know, the education uh, system, it's, it's a shame that people feel the only way to survive is to exit. We you need know, to create a sustainable system here. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, you know, um, I'm the executive director of the Catalyst Institute, which is for the delay and prevention of age-related diseases. And I have two mm -hmm. associates, young associates. Both of them graduated last year from Dartmouth undergraduate school uh, with their bachelors of sciences. And they're both now applying for medical school, right? Mm. So w one is male, one is female. 
And mm-hmm. the fact is that just that stress, I'm watching them mm-hmm. with that stress. I asked mm-hmm. them to do something and they said, oh, I can't do it in July. Can't because we're going to spend every night, every night mm-hmm. um, working on, to apply for medical school. So the stress begins extremely early, by the way. You don't even have mm-hmm. to be in medical school. Right. In order for the stress. <laughs> so that's that's one of the, one of the issues that uh, empowering women physicians coaching has to do with. And I'm going to talk about how successful that has been uh, in our next segment. But I also want to um, understand here whether or not doctors can admit that they are human. We we talk about humanizing the face of doctors. We honestly don't want that. We really would mm-hmm. like our doctors to be uh, Superman and a Marvel comic mm-hmm. hero. That's what, what we want mm-hmm. because we want them to make us better, period. That's it. Uh, don't mm-hmm. worry about themselves. The, the, la- the last thing we want is a doctor who comes in and says, you know, I got a pain over here. We, we don't want that. <laughs> or, oh, whatever. It says, hello to the patient. What a crappy day I had. No, we don't want to hear that. But I am going to be asking you a couple of questions that are on the mind of every patient. Is it true, and we'll do this as soon as we come back, is it true that most doctors are told they have 15 minutes with the patient and is it also true that they spend more stress on insurance forms than practicing medicine, which I hear over and over again? Don't you guys go anywhere. We'll be back with the Fountain of Truth. Full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. da 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 Hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth. A little bit of quick housekeeping. For those of you who have an idea for a uh, guest or a topic, please, or you have a question for me, please go to Ask Adrian on my website, A-D-R-I-A-N-E-B-E-R-G.com. Very simple. We also, of course, archive our uh, podcasts, our blogs there. But most importantly, for those of you who want your free invitations to the Catalyst Institute events, we just had a great one on mitochondria, cell strength. We had one on the Dog Aging Project a couple of weeks ago where your dog can register to be monitored, to take a look and see whether the, what they are eating, the exercise you're giving them is going to help them live longer. It's the largest mammal study on aging ever made, and now it has 100,000 dogs involved. So from beauty to prevention to exercise, we have terrific events. And in October, it's the big four-day extravaganza, targetingmetabesity.com. We had about a thousand people last year. We should have about two this year. It's virtual and it's free. Get invited. Simply go to adrianberg.com and let me know that you would like an invitation. And all I need is your email address. Okay, I want to get back now to our guest, Dr. Sunny Smith. She's the founder of Empowering Women's Physicians Coaching. She told us about the experience that she had as a young uh, medical student, and it was all caused by stress. She decided to do something about that when it affected her own life, and she started uh, the Empowering Women's Physician Coaching. But I ended with a question, Sunny, that um, that I have heard 
and I believed it. And I don't know if it's fake news or not, so I'm going to re-ask it. I have heard, a particularly family uh, physicians, because you're a professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California, particularly family physicians, they get about 15 minutes per patient. And that they're kind of like a, I, I think of it almost like a whip. You know, you got to mm-hmm. get, keep the patients, keep it going, keep it going. And the other is that they spend too much time to their likes on paperwork. But I do see people in the offices that they hire doing the paperwork. I don't know what's true. Tell us what's true. That is absolutely true. <laughs> it is the, um, I mean, it was a significant challenge before the electronic health records, but now in particular, since we have electronic health records, there is very good documentation and publications and studies from the beginning of internship well through attendings and including attending family physicians at many different sites that we spend way more time with our computers face-to-face with the computer than face-to-face with the patient. And we do feel exactly like you were saying, we feel like a cog in a wheel. We feel like we're in a machine. We feel like we need to go faster. And our desire is to sit that because, because you may have patients who feel like their doctor doesn't want to sit and listen. And they're always staring at the screen and they're going faster. And the thing is the doctors don't want this. It's kind of a moral conundrum or we call it moral injury is a word that people use instead of burnout which is you ask us to be present and heal and then you ask us to go faster and faster and create systems and situations in which we're not really able to take the time that we would prefer and so I believe that even before COVID we were sort of at a tipping point where things were going to have to change because the burnout numbers were so significant, the distress, the depression, the anxiety. I mean, my little boy, you know, if you ask him what it's like to be a doctor, he pulls out his computer and he starts typing on a laptop, right? And says, I'm mommy, I'm being a doctor. Whereas little boys used to, and little girls used to pull out stethoscopes. But to our children, this is what doctoring is, is facing a computer. And that's not what we want. So now I think though is the time, particularly since COVID has brought on so much additional mental health distress and so much extra pressure that, and and it also, one thing that is beautiful about this varied unfortunate pandemic is that it showed that we can adapt. We can change. Everyone went virtual almost overnight. You know, we've been working on trying to get telehealth visits and change things, but the systems that be, you know, whether it's the insurance agency or your own medical practice or patients' expectations, we think, oh, it, it just has to be this way. It just is this way. But our healthcare system, as it currently exists, everyone knows, is an accident of history. It never would have been designed like this. It's, you know, first there was the passage of Medicare, and then there was, you know, HMOs came in the 80s, and then the EHR sort of 2008, there was the American Reinvestment Recovery Act, which incentivized those. And just if you look at all the different factors, so many different insurances, so many different um, disparities in health and doctors, it, it, the equivalent that we use is it'd be like asking the judge to be the court reporter and to ask the judge to do the, to do the court reporting from home yes. on nights and weekends after the, after the court uh, proceedings were over. Like, it's ridiculous. I just, it doesn't make any sense why we ask this of our physicians. 
And I will tell you that from the financial planning industry that I was in for many years, we don't ask our advisors, our financial advisors, to do the paperwork. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have a firm that would ask that, they would not get any advisors. So, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, just pretty interesting stuff. So so let, let's just, for the couple minutes we have, let, let's turn our attention. Let's pretend we're all doctors right now. Mm. And, and I'll even go further. We're women doctors, so we can go into empowering women uh, coaching. <laughs> What would you tell us? I mean, would you, uh, on an individual basis, do you empower physicians to be able to uh, advocate for themselves? Do you put, I'll be honest, do you put pressure on the AMA and other groups that are representatives of doctors, including the American Women uh, Medical Association, to to look at the stress level? Uh, And are you getting any traction on any of this? These are really good questions. So we can always wait for the system to change or we can decide that we are changing. (laughs) And so what we do is we work to change the people who then change the system. And so if you believe that you have a chance and if you believe that your voice matters and if you believe that we are the most important instrument of healthcare are the physicians then you speak your voice. So we tell people when they come in and they're in distress, we say, you have a choice. You have a voice. You know, there's 60 hours a week doesn't have to be the norm. 80 hours a week doesn't have to be the norm. They can't make you show up, right? Like you get to choose what you're going to do, what you're going to allow. We all start to observe what we've been tolerating for so long, what we've realized We've internalized these um, sort of cultural norms that are sort of like military or hierarchical or do what you're told. And we start to say, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. What could we do? And you start with any kind of small win, right? Like someone might decide that they're not going to work weekends anymore or that they're not going to see patients more than every half hour or whatever their small thing for where they work, that they're not going to operate on elective cases in the middle of the night, that they're going to be well rested or whatever these things are for them. They start to find them and then you build the small wins and then the compound effect over time really starts to add up. And we do have many, many of our clients who are in national organizations as those that you mentioned and who are leaders in the organization. And then they also will go from say a quote unquote regular doctor to a director or the chief medical officer so that they can start to change policy locally. And then we also have people who are um, changing policy nationally. So we are trying to, it's kind of like Stacey Abrams has a book that's called lead from the outside. And so we kind of try to lead from the outside, but then also we are the people who are also on the inside. So it's like any change, you know, the Titanic takes a long time to change its course, a big ship. And so we do that. We try to veer the big ships, but then we also um, have control and take control where we have the most control, which is often in our own local offices. So again, just that old aphorism thing, Think, uh, think globally, act locally. When we come back, yes. I, want to, I, I want to relate this to uh, generationals and mm-hmm. how it differs generation to generation, mm-hmm. how we regard ourselves and how we feel that we must work. Don't mm-hmm. you guys go anywhere. We'll be right back. All of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. 
Hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth. The Fountain of Truth about aging. But here we're talking today with Dr. Sunny Smith about the Fountain of Truth, really, about doctors. Uh, there was a journalist, Sonny. His name is Art Buckwald. Very, very funny guy. And he defined an economist. He said, an economist is like a man who knows everything about women, but doesn't know any women. So, <laughs> well... We're a little bit, the reason I wanted you on, to be honest with you, is we're a little bit like The Economist. We know everything about healthcare. We know everything about biohacking. We know everything about longevity. We know everything about medical treatment, but we don't know any doctors. Because the doctors that we know are such a quick glimpse. Now he's there, now he's not, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have a glimpse. We also have, as patients, a desire for that doctor not to really be human. We don't want to know too much. The last thing we want to hear is, my doctor's getting a divorce. No, my doctor has no problems at home. It just comes like in a, in a, in a mayonnaise jar and then they open the lid and he's a doctor or she's a doctor. It's not true. So we're learning. We're learning about doctors. And we did learn about how stressful it can be from medical school to practice. But I do want to talk about your empowerment. Now, the way you described it to me and to us a moment ago is that we're allowed, we have permission as physicians to do less and have more life balance. And you're coaching people for that. But to my generation and even more so the generation of my mother, the greatest generation, that mm-hmm. was wrong. That was wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you, mm-hmm. you were not a great doctor or a great lawyer, let's say, or a great judge or a great plumber if you didn't see your work and career as coming first. But you're also a professor, uh, a, an award-winning professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California, San Diego. So the, the people you're dealing with are younger, like my two associates who just graduated from Dartmouth. Is there a difference? Is it an easier sell? Is, is your life balance coaching an easier sell to a younger generation or am I off on that one? Well, it's interesting. I think there's no doubt there's very significant generational cultural norms that are different. Um, I think those who are around the age of retirement right now in medicine, you know, you think about the time that when they came up, and what they had to go through. And, you know, and particularly there weren't even that many women back then. So sure. you had to act in a certain way. You had to be a certain right. way. You had to, you know, do all of the things and not complain. And um, people will say that working 60 to 80 hours is completely normal. When we started talking about work hour restrictions for residents from taking them from 36 hours to 24 hours, they're in the generation above me. I'm in my 40s, so I'm Gen X. And the generation above me would say, that is ridiculous, right? Why Sounds lazy. Why can't you? Yeah. Like, why can't lazy, you do it? I did. Yeah, yeah, it's like, I did it, you do it. Yeah, this is what we do. This is just what we do. And I'm like, and whenever anyone gives me that kind of thing, I'm like, really? Would you like to see the picture of me in a coma? 
<laughs> you think that's what we require of physicians? You think for some reason that that is required? It's, it, it's like a hazing and it doesn't make sense, you know, but, and, and especially we actually had Jill Bolte-Taylor, who's a neuroanatomist that has a very uh, profound and meaningful TED talk. It's one of their TED, uh, most top watched TED talks ever about having a stroke. So your listeners might want to check that out. But we had her in um, last weekend to talk to our folks. And she said, medicine is just behind because neurobiologically and neuroanatomy with, if you look at neuroanatomy and how the brain cells and neurons function, we're like 20 years behind because 20 years ago, we knew that you couldn't function without sleep. That's when we learned as much as we know now about the importance of sleep and neurogenesis and how the brain functions. And you wouldn't ever want your doctor to be operating on you as a patient if they're in their 26th or 30th hour. You bet. You know, if your trauma surgeon has been up all night long, that's not the person you want operating on you while you're bleeding, right? So when you think about it from a public health standpoint or even just a patient standpoint, it doesn't make sense either for the doctor as a human being and their biologic functioning or you wanting optimal care. So in my generation, we're sort of in this in-between place where we're like, well, we're told we have to do this, but it doesn't seem reasonable. And when people get to sort of like they, they were sacrificing themselves for others with the hope that there was this sort of like, um, you would arrive and there would be the end yes. of the rainbow and a pot of gold, right? And one day it would get better. But you, when you get to be in your 40s, you realize you're far enough out from training that that was all a fallacy. It's a complete arrival fallacy. It's never going to get better if we, if we don't make it better. And so the generation beneath me now that I, when I first started as faculty, you're right, I identified mostly with the students and not with the faculty. And then as the years have gone on, now I identify much more with the faculty than the students. But the students, I mean, they are, as you can imagine, um, millennials, people can say what they want good or bad about them but the fact is they are used to working more independently they grew yes. up with iphones and computers and they can't imagine i went to med school without a laptop and <laughs> that was ever a thing um, but they have ideas about what they want to see about their autonomy about their ability to make decisions they don't believe in putting in 30 years to rise up the ranks the way that people used to do that you know put in the years and then eventually you'll you'll be successful so they are driving i think a lot of social change and i think they're driving culture change also in medicine so when they're getting hired now right and so recruiters if you're in the hr department at any kind of big organization big medical organization is what I'm speaking to, of course, for any right. organization, but they, they come in and they're like, okay, how many, what, what's my work schedule? How much time off do I get? And, and they're not even as concerned about the extra dollars as making sure they get their weeks off. As, as, well, right now, right now, time is money. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a time when money was money. And mm -hmm. the only thing that really counted was how much you were earning and how much mm -hmm. you could earn. And right. let's face it, in my generation, a lot of people became doctors because they thought it, they'd get rich. And mm -hmm. in the, I will tell you from the point of view of anybody in the financial field, the lowest retirement amounts are with doctors. Doctors <laughs> make money in, and have money for retirement. Are you ready for this, folks? Because they bought the medical building. 
if they didn't mm. own the real estate, if they didn't own mm. the real estate, because they spent mm-hmm. so much money on relaxation, so much money on things, so much money on outlets for their stress during their mm-hmm. lifetime, and so much money to look wealthy, that the only reason mm. they get wealthy is they be, they buy real estate. Mm. Otherwise, and the hundreds of thousands, the average debt when you leave medical school now, you know, you're 24 years old or so, and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt on average. So it takes a long time to dig yourself out of that hole. And that's why people feel so trapped because they're like, right. Because they, they, there's years before, I mean, I I have to admit, mm -hmm. I was 32, I was 32 Mm -hmm. years old before I paid off my, my law school debt too. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's wor- worse in medicine. It's pretty bad in law, mm-hmm. I have to tell you. But the mm-hmm. fact is, when we come back, I want to emphasize two things. One, is there something that the consumer, that the patient should be aware mm. of if mm. they think their doctor is stressed out? Are there mm. any telltale signs? And the second thing mm. I want to talk about is this telemedicine and whether mm. it's good, good news or bad news for doctors. Because you did mention, uh, Dr. Smith, the fact that we moved very quickly into telehealth mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. COVID. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we did was we covered it in Medicare. So telehealth mm-hmm. was not covered. And it is now. Once mm-hmm. it's covered, it's there. This is not going to go away just when COVID goes away. So we will be right back. Don't go anywhere. All of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy. And I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da 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 da. Da 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 da. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me not even a bit. Cause I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the fountain of truth, the fountain of truth about aging. Now, one of the truths about aging is that you probably have more than one physician. I just joined something here because I moved to Palm Springs, and it's called a medical home. And one of the things I did was I changed my medical home. So I had a number, let's say five or six different physicians, and a dentist, and an eye doctor was in there, and my family physician. Uh, there. And now I have the same group, the same labels anyway, here in the, on the West Coast. And I find a huge difference. Let's call a doctor a product. Our guest, uh, Dr. Sonny Smith, does not want me to say that. Or <laughs> are human beings? But let's call them a product for a minute. Let me tell you, they're not fungible. It's not like toothpaste. Uh, I am getting such a different treatment that here on the West Coast and the East Coast, there's definitely cultural differences, which you deal with so much in um, as the founder of Empowering Women Physicians Coaching. So first, before we go any further, we may very well have physicians or like my associates, young medical students, very interested in this. So how do they find Empowering, uh, empowering Women Physicians Coaching? I have a podcast. So obviously, if they're listening to this, they're podcast listeners, they can just go over in their app and search for Empowering Women Physicians. And if they want to find me on the internet and through Google, they can go to empoweringwomenphysicians.com. And I'm on Instagram, they can find me there, Sunny Smith MD. So this is terrific. Now, the other thing is, and I had said this during our first break, 
the elephant in the room. It's empowering women's physicians. Mm. Now, of course, that makes sense, as let's say, culturally. You're a woman. There's many, many issues that deal with uh, women physicians. I was at a big conference, and Gloria Steinem was the, the speaker, um, and that was an international association of women doctors. And their problem was that they were being overlooked. Their problem was that they weren't getting the good career path, the dollars, the recognition men. In other words, the usual discrimination kinds of issues. But your issues are different when it comes to women. Do you think that it's a little bit more difficult to assert yourself and say, gee, I don't want to work that hard? In my day, you couldn't do that. It was just the opposite. If you want to break the glass ceiling, not only did you have to work as hard as a man, but harder. Uh, right. So do you think we still have that stigma that it's very difficult to say in looking for a position, how many hours do I have to work? Can I take maternity leave? Uh, how many vacation days do I have? I don't know. Uh, have, have things changed or pretty much the same? Oh, there's still, I mean, we've made progress in terms of about half of entering medical students are now women. But if you look at the leadership positions, it very much reflects what you're talking about, where it's a small percent, single digits are of women physicians are deans or, um, you know, the percentage that become full professors is a small amount The the number and percentage and representation of women and certainly minority women physicians in positions of leadership and influence is still very small. So I think there's a, a lot of work to be done. And in addition, just like throughout all of culture and society, um, but it, for women in medicine, we are earning maybe on average around 75% of what men doing the same exact job do, whether you're in academics or private practice or community practice. And so basically, if you look at that, on average, I know not all practices are this way, but on average, across all different settings, women are working January, February, March for free, completely for free. We're like, no problem. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's why does that still exist? You'd think the minute that someone saw that statistic, that they would say, well, this is wrong. This must be changed right away. Obviously, a woman surgeon doing the same work as a male surgeon deserves the same reimbursement and take home salary. But it just doesn't work that way, just as the same as it is in across professions. Well, and so true. there's. And that's true. Pardon. You know, as a, well, as a lawyer, I was in the first graduating class uh, that had 20 percent women in law school, in NYU law school. Mm. And it was the first graduating class that brought a real spate of women into um, into big law firms, Wall Street firms. And two things happened. One, you got paid less. Mm -hmm. Two, most important, more important, you could not become partner. Mm. And we think things have changed. But one of the things women did, and I'm going to throw this to you about doctors, we would also relegate it to particular types of practice, like mm -hmm. domestic relations, mm -hmm. trust in estates, even tax, but very little criminal law, um, mm -hmm. antitrust law happened to have been an antitrust, but that was almost a fluke. All the big tough stuff where there was frankly more money. So mm -hmm. our specialties were different. Mm -hmm. Now, does that happen in medicine too, where women migrate to um, different specialties because they, they're kind of 
brought, they know they could do better in them simply because they get better treatment? Or is that not happening in the field of medicine? Oh, 100% that women um, tend to go into things like primary care and pediatrics which tend to be uh, lower paying. (laughs) But even when you do control for that and you do the same job, same position, same number of patients, same number of hours, we still end up paid less. But yes, if you look at women tend to go into things like pediatrics, primary care, and obstetrics. And if you look at, you know, neurosurgery or orthopedic surgery or cardiothoracic surgery, it's a very small number of women physicians in those specialties. So the the overall number, like maybe there's 300 women physicians who are cardiothoracic surgeons in the country right now, and the percentage is incredibly small. So it's just not a very welcoming environment um, historically for for women to go into, as you found when you were, you know, yes, amongst exactly. one of the first in law school, right? It's just people right. just aren't used to having people um, Again, who are, it's so funny when you're the first, you're so tired of being the first. Well, you're the first to need a maternity leave. You're the first to, are you going to have pumping? Are you like, how many times do you want to be the first? (laughs) Oh, exactly, exactly true. And one of the things that uh, I want to finish off with here is for those of us who are patients and not doctors, one of the stress levels has been the the telehealth. And I just want to, I'm just very curious. Uh, My doctors are now, particularly during COVID, uh, they did telehealth, but then they feel, they seem to feel relieved that we can come into the office now. How do doctors Mm. feel about telehealth? Uh, People feel pretty good about it because they don't have to schlep. But what about doctors? Mm -hmm. I I think it's a mixed bag because you're right. We do appreciate not schlepping when we're allowed not to schlep. Um, But there is also this awareness that sometimes we have to lay our hands on people. And so I think what hopefully will come from this when one of the things that will come from this, when the world is open enough that we are able to bring people in when we want to lay our hands on people and be able to listen with our stethoscopes and touch and feel and bond and hug (laughs) and say, it's so glad to see you again. I'm so glad you made it through. And there is also the idea that you don't have to come in for everything. (laughs) You know, if you need a refill, do I really need to see you if I've given you the same medication, your blood pressure has been well controlled for a really long time? Like how many times do I really need to see you in person? So I think that there's um, just the, as I said, the medicine is kind of behind other things in the culture, you know, and so we are just kind of catching up with the fact that everyone has a cell phone, (laughs) everyone has a computer. So let's use them when it becomes appropriate to use them. So I think that will be the way going forward, is that we get to choose when it seems most appropriate and convenient for our patients and desirable for our patients. Like, for instance, my brother is handicapped, and he's in a uh, hospital bed in the house. So every time we had to go in, oh my goodness, the doctor, it was an, yeah, it was an right. ambulance every that, single time. And the right, doctor right, would right. be like, well, you have to come in and we'd okay, call an ambulance and arrange for him to go in. And now they're so much more open to, okay, this one really doesn't require an in-person visit. And so I think we'll have a lot more flexibility so it can be seen as desirable now that we know it can be done. Right. Then we and can choose. Covered. And, and it's, it's covered. covered. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Thank you so much. We're, we're at the end of our show, and it's been a fa- fantastic show, a real turn of events for me because we're always looking at everything from the patient's point of view. Mm. And we thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for giving us a glimpse on the other side of the 
of the counter there. And uh, thank you so much. And by the way, for everybody else, because COVID is lifting, it is now time for you to go back to your volunteer work, Mm -hmm. go to the theater, do everything you love to do. Get out there, kids, and make it happen. I'm inappropriate.